Hey, it's Brent for Burgundy Blog and Burgundy Blogcast. This is episode 8 of the 5th season of the Blogcast. We're in week 7 of the NFL season, and the Redskins, of course, just fell to 1-6 and six after losing 9 nothing to the San Francisco 49ers. That's right, they got shut out. They scored 0 points in a regulation NFL game. That doesn't happen to teams very often, but it happened to the Redskins in week 17 of last season, so it really hasn't been that, that many games since the last time that happened to the Redskins. Kind of an interesting stat right there, isn't it? Anyway, the game only lasted about two and a half hours since the Redskins didn't do any scoring. And, you know, scoring tends to lengthen NFL games because you have to do the celebrating and the extra point and then the extra commercial break. So with the Redskins scoring zero today, the game moved along quite briskly. Anyway, let's talk a little about the one in six Redskins who just lost nine to nothing. That's nine zero. Well, you really can't do any worse than zero, can you? Zero is the worst you can do. You could literally field an offense of children coached by monkeys, and you would not do worse in terms of point scoring than the Redskins offense did today. Most NFL teams, of course, would be humiliated after a performance like this, but I'm sure that Bruce Allen will be quite satisfied and actually proud of his team for keeping it within two scores. That means you're close, and that, of course, is because the culture around here is actually damn good. The Redskins, as an organization, have really been playing up this new new image, new identity under interim head coach Bill Callahan of hard-nosed physical football and, in particular, a run-based offensive identity to really hang your hat on. Callahan's been talking about that at great length in all of his press conferences since being named the interim head coach. He said once, in fact, that really one of his primary goals as uh, head coach and overseer of the offense is to maximize rushing attempts, which is a strategy and a philosophy that I referred to on Twitter as positively prehistoric, and indeed it is. That's a dumb goal in and of itself. Well, today, the combination of Callahan's influence and, of course, extreme weather contributed to the Redskins literally calling more than twice as many run plays as pass plays, giving 26 handoffs to ball carriers and asking Case Keenum to throw the ball only 12 times. Those numbers are built on the first 10 or 11, maybe 12 plays, I don't know, some ridiculous number of consecutive runs to start the game for the offense on a drive that, granted, was successful and got them into field goal range, but resulted in zero points, just like all of their other drives today. Ultimately, those 26 carries averaged four yards apiece, which, even against a very good San Francisco 49ers defense, is pedestrian. Meanwhile, Case Keenum threw for less than 80 yards. Case Keenum sucks, and we've known that for weeks, but you cannot win games anymore with any regularity, even in a downpour when you cannot and won't throw the ball. So look, either Case Keenum, Case Keenum is so unbelievably bad that it is totally indefensible for you to be playing him over the first-round rookie Haskins, who clearly, obviously, according to literally everyone, has infinitely more talent, and therefore you're being stubborn and counterproductive in your personnel decision-making, or your play-calling by golden boy Kevin O'Connell, supervised by the beautiful mind of Bill Callahan, is antiquated and ineffective. So which is it, guys? In which one of those ways are you terrible? Or is it both? Ooh, that's the wild card. It might be both. Okay, uh, a tiny part of that last rant was for show. I mean, I, I understand that, yes, you're going to run the ball more than you otherwise would 
uh, on a day when it's pouring rain through all four quarters and the field is a giant puddle. Garoppolo didn't have any success throwing the ball either. So I get it. I'll cut you a tiny bit of slack on that. But the point remains, because it is so clearly supported by contemporary NFL trends and statistics, that while being able to establish the run is helpful, and particularly helpful in making a team competitive or allowing a team to keep games close, you cannot be a good offense and a regular winner without a good passing offense. And there's not really much point in me harping on how much Case Keenum sucks, because he just does. And they're not going to be able to make him better. But the point is, you're gaining nothing by putting him out there instead of Haskins. Who on earth cares if he's a little better at spitting out the play calls or breaking the huddle or audibling or any of that very important pre-snap functional stuff? Who cares? Even if it is important, you got zero points today and he's been terrible. He was terrible before Gruden was fired. and He's been terrible in both games since Gruden was fired. If Case Keenum still makes the most sense as your starter on any level at all, using any decision calculus, any rationale, if Keenum still represents to you the most appropriate choice for starting quarterback, even next week, even on the short week, looking as bad as he has looked for weeks and putting up zero points today, then you have utterly, utterly failed in your preparation of Dwayne Haskins to this point, to this early point in his career. Even if Haskins is the laziest man ever born and illiterate, we are halfway through a lost, dead season, and the other guy is a disaster. He's a zero. You trusted him enough to throw it 12 times in a game you lost. Play Haskins. He needs experience. You cannot get worse. And you're not going to break him because nothing should be expected of him. Literally nothing should be expected of him right now. Few completions a game is what should be expected of him by coaches and fans. No one's going to be expecting wins, impressive stats, some kind of turnaround, rising above the current situation. No one. Not casual fans, not sophisticated fans, not national pundits. It's a brutal situation that nobody could overcome right now. So what? Get him in there. Get him used to the speed of the NFL game. Get him exposure to coverages. Get him exposure to blitzes. Teach him what he needs to know. Let him know what he doesn't know. If you're worried about his attitude, his preparation, his intensity or whatever off the field, how about you let him get in there again and get his ass kicked? And get embarrassed a little bit. You don't think that's going to maybe motivate him a little bit more than you continuing to tell him that he's not ready yet because you have to play Case Keenum? I want to go back to Adrian Peterson for a second. Everyone knows by now that there was friction between Peterson and Jay Gruden, to say the least. There were some pretty convincing rumors or reports that Gruden had been in favor of cutting Peterson before the season started. And then, of course, he deactivated him in the first week, which pissed off Peterson and apparently upset most of his teammates, too. Then the Redskins fell to 0-5, and although there were many reasons for Gruden's firing, the philosophical disagreements between Peterson and Gruden escalated into essentially a power struggle. Gruden wasn't running the ball much, Peterson was saying openly that things were bad and needed to change, then Gruden gets fired, and Peterson immediately gets crowned the focal point of the offense by the new guy. So he won. Jay got canned, and AP got what he wanted. Now in the first game, they played the team with literally the worst run defense in the NFL, the Dolphins. And Peterson put up a nice stat line going over 100 yards. And they barely won in a way that was just infuriating and disappointing to me, which I won't rehash today. But for about a week, this whole new fascination with the running game and return to the ground and pound was no worse than a push and may be viewed by some as a slight win for Callahan and Peterson. Well, today, Peterson, although he had some nice runs in the first half, did not make any truly game-changing plays, only averaged about four yards per carry. And in the second half, while it was still a competitive game, He got shut down on a fourth and one, and then later he fumbled in what was definitely the biggest mistake of anybody on the team. That was the most crucial error anybody made today. So my point here is that your fresh new identity, which everyone's been bragging about, Callahan, Peterson, Bruce Allen, the Redskins' social media feeds, this cool new throwback mentality takes a pretty big hit 
when old man Adrian Peterson not only can't be the hero, but also in at least one key way turns out to be the goat. By the way, that's goat as in, you know, the guy whose fault it is, not G-O-A-T kind of goat. He's been demanding the ball. Today, again, the play callers obliged, almost to the exclusion of everyone else, including McLaurin, who's their only real offensive threat right now, and he got like two targets. He demanded it. Peterson did. He got it. No one else got anything, and the results included a failure on a key fourth down, a crucial backbreaking turnover, and zero total points. So it's time to shut up, Adrian. Incidentally, uh, the other running back today, Wendell Smallwood, uh, who got some some run in uh, Chris Thompson's absence, actually looked pretty good, didn't he? He had five carries for 23 yards, uh, averaging 4.6 a carry. Some of those looked pretty good. He he was kind of shifty, and then he had the one nice uh, screen screenplay, a reception that turned into 18 yards. So not that it really matters right now, but he is a, a decent-looking player who might still have some value to the team in future seasons, especially if Chris Thompson ends up moving on. It rained really hard uh, all morning and throughout the game, so the conditions would have tested any field, no matter the surface or type of grass. But as expected, the Chronically inadequate playing surface at FedEx Field failed that test very badly. It's pretty obvious that there's absolutely no mechanism for that field to drain naturally. I wasn't there, but it was, I think, clear to all of us on the broadcast that the whole thing was sopping wet with standing water. You shouldn't be able to slide on your belly like Frosty the Snowman from one hash mark to the sideline. The crappy field allowed the weather to become the most important factor in the game for either team. That just shouldn't be the case. That's not good for the sport. Magnifying the effect of the weather clearly neutralized the natural disparity between the two teams. In other words, it was an equalizer. So in this case, it greatly benefited the inferior team, which of course was the Redskins. I highly doubt anyone on the Redskins sideline was upset by the weather or the shoddy field, because the sloppier and the messier and generally just the more abnormal the game became, the less important became the actual differences in talent and coaching. Prior to today, the the field there at FedEx hadn't looked at as bad in most games as it has in previous years. But here, yet again, for a new reason, it became a national embarrassment, with the entire 49ers team celebrating at the end of the game in a big group slip and slide, which both coaches even had to address in their postgame pressers. The crappiness of the playing surface at FedEx Field is just one of a thousand different reasons the Redskins organization is substandard. They just can't get things right. The field is bad. The stadium is awful. Their public relations are chronically horrendous. They screw up hirings like Jim Zorn. They screw up firings like Scott McLuhan. They screw up spellings like Doug Williams and London Fletcher. Their throwback uniforms are a total disaster. They use a throwback jersey and a throwback logo that were never actually used by the team at any point in history. That thing is a modernized approximation. Then, to go with it, they use their current helmets with the current shade of burgundy, which doesn't match. It looks like a red cherry on top. This unpleasant effect, by the way, was actually minimized a little bit today by the rain. And then the helmets have the current logos, too. So the uniform has two different shades of burgundy and two different logos. Yes, we all know by now that there's a dumb NFL rule that prohibits the team from switching helmets for one game in the middle of the season. So yeah, I realize that they're stuck with their usual helmets, but the helmets can get made over. You see how they take off the stripe for the throwback game? You can take things off, put things on, paint it, cover it. Just do better. Fix that thing. It's hideous. But you see how the field and the uniforms and the PR, things that are barely even topics with regard to other NFL teams, are not only topics here, but targets. The failings are varied and continual because the organization is just very poorly run. 
A couple years ago, when the Redskins drafted Troy Apke in the fourth round, pretty much everyone immediately referred to that pick as a big reach. He had tested really well at the Combine, but he was not an accomplished player coming out of Penn State. My immediate reaction to some of that criticism, you might even recall on this podcast, was to push back a little bit, not because I knew anything about Troy Apke other than that he had run a sub 4440, because I didn't. I, I never watched him in college. But I didn't really like the idea of immediately crushing a pick, you know, a mid-round pick that was maybe a couple rounds too early, on a guy with at least one exceptional trait, just because he wasn't a popular name on most mocks. Apke, of course, has been very unimpactful in his young career, being injured for most of last season after failing to impress in the early part, and then barely playing at all on defense this year, although he's made a few plays on special teams. Well, today Monte Nicholson hurt his ankle, Apke came in, he almost immediately made a pretty nice interception off Garoppolo, which actually could have been sort of a turning point in the game. It should be noted that the pass from Garoppolo was terrible. So here's my opportunity to say I told you so about Troy Apke, right? <laughs> LOL, no. Apke's not good. He was a reach. He made a nice interception, and his speed allows him to cover up some of his technical faults, but he is still not particularly good overall in coverage, and he's bad against the run. He takes terrible angles. At least that's what I feel I've seen from him in his limited snaps on defense, like in the preseason and then in the second half today. I guess we'll probably find out tomorrow or sometime soon about Nicholson's injury. And it's not like Monte Nicholson is some total world beater. He's been very up and down in his career. But if Nicholson's out for an extended period and Apke has to play for an extended period, good quarterbacks and good running backs are going to absolutely annihilate Troy Apke. In fact, I suspect Kirk Cousins will enjoy picking him apart next week in Minnesota. Here comes an increasingly rare moment of positivity for the Redskins. Eric Flowers has been no worse than average at left guard for most of this year, and at times better than average. He definitely does not suck as a guard. Most of us are surprised, and I admit to definitely being blown away by this. It really can't be overstated just how bad Flowers was as a tackle for several years after being a first-round bust in New York, and then for like a month this summer with the Redskins as they tried to figure out how to deal with not having Trent Williams and before Donald Penn signed. Flowers actually seems to have reinvented himself as a guard, and I now suspect that whether it's with the Redskins or another team, he will probably be able to carve out a little bit of a career. This after I expected him to flame out badly with the Redskins, maybe even get cut this year, and then not necessarily be given another chance. Not that the Redskins offense has been able to take advantage of it very much, but I guess you could say that they are lucky that he has turned out to be decent, since fourth-rounder Wes Martin did not turn out to be the plug-and-play week-one starter that many fans hoped he would be. Maybe Flowers will think about staying around in Washington, and maybe the Redskins will think about keeping him, but I do think part of his attraction to the Redskins and part of the reason he's panned out was the influence and teaching of Bill Callahan. And although Callahan is Team Bruce, I'm not sure how likely it is that Callahan will be back with this staff next year. On the flip side, there's a player who I think many of us were expecting quite a lot out of this year, and who has for the most part failed to deliver. He's on the other side of the ball, and that's Montez Sweat. Coming into today in six games, he had recorded one sack, three tackles for a loss, and three quarterback hits. Today, he did get half a sack. But this guy, overall, pretty much continues to not matter. I'd say even Ryan Anderson has been more involved than Sweat, and Anderson is still not good either. Now, we're not even halfway through his first season, so obviously it's way too early to write him off. But I'd be less concerned about Sweat if he was showing at least a few more flashes, like brief glimpses of excellence. I think it's a little worrisome that we're really not even seeing much of that. 
Like, he's pretty much been just a guy in every game, and without any signature plays so far. Again, way, way too early to pass judgment on the player or the pick, but I don't know how your early impression can't be that he's a little more likely to underachieve than over. I'm not smart enough to tell you about his technique so far, but I wouldn't say that his speed has really jumped off the screen, and it kind of seems like he's on the low end of the overall intensity scale. I'd prefer to see a little more overt competitiveness in an outside linebacker. Last week on the pod, I talked about how Michael Lombardi had had reported, I guess, or mentioned on his pod that his contacts within the Redskins organization, which we know to include several high-level coaches, had been telling him that the work ethic and overall attitude of Dwayne Haskins was lacking, that some had interpreted his behavior as demonstrating a sense of premature entitlement, that maybe he wasn't working as hard as necessary to prepare himself to actually play, and or that his intangibles just aren't great. And now I would say that those of us who pay close attention to the public remarks made by Redskins coaches, including Callahan and Kevin O'Connell, who is of course now the full-time play caller and also close colleague of Haskins' coach at Ohio State, Ryan Day. Those of us who watch or read those pressers have, I think, finally started to grasp that the staff collectively has been implying not the same level of criticism or judgment that Lombardi passed, but certainly that at least prior to the last couple of weeks, which of course, coincidentally or not, is also the post-Gruden era time frame, but prior to Haskins playing against the Giants or prior to Gruden being canned, I'm quite convinced now that the Redskins coaches collectively actually did feel at least somewhat underwhelmed or unimpressed by the energy or effort with which Haskins was apparently investing in his own development. Now, there's one thing I'll add here based strictly 100% on my own observation, which is from far away and secondhand. But you know, I read everything and watch everything and listen to everything I can get my hands on about this stuff. And every once in a while, I hear something from a friend of a friend of whoever. But my observation is that overall, Dwayne Haskins is just an extremely, like, unusually chill and unhypable dude. I obviously can't say whether he is or isn't too into himself or overconfident or driven, and I don't know how he looks like on the whiteboard, you know, today. But his body language and his facial expressions and his interviews all convey this deep sense of chillness, and I can see how that might not immediately win over a coach or coaching staff that was reportedly at at least a little skeptical of your draft status to begin with. Okay, if if Haskins comes in with head coach Jay Gruden believing him to be a long-term project, and then even if Haskins starts to, in fairly short order, demonstrate the physical and intellectual capacity to play, I can see how in a world where Colt McCoy and Case Keenum are lifted up as top-level competitors and captains for their eagerness and tenacity and grit, I could easily see how the super-chill, self-confident young guy might not immediately ascend to the head of the class. I can certainly see how, like if Jay had had Daniel Jones or Gardner Minshew or Ryan Finley show up on day one with a pocket protector and a trapper keeper, maybe one of them might have been fast-tracked in a different way, even, even if he had been picked far later in the draft. But it does kind of seem like there might be a personality disconnect between Haskins and some of these guys coaching offense. 
And that could be a problem for any or all of them, because unless Haskins just completely craps the bed whenever he does get to play, he's obviously more likely to stay than any coach. So with O'Connell in particular, I just think that's that's even one more reason that Haskins needs to get in there. You got to find out how those two work together. The rest of the season needs to be about Haskins, but also very much about Haskins plus O'Connell. Can they hit it off to the extent that Baker Mayfield and Freddie Kitchens did or seem to at the end of last season in Cleveland, like enough for the coach to be considered a key part in the next phase of Haskins' development? Also, of course, I would have liked to have been hearing all along that Haskins somehow immediately miraculously knew exactly what it took to be a pro. But that kind of awareness, especially at the quarterback position, is is not common. I don't think even among the really good players. I mean, maybe some, but certainly not all. So no, it's not damning that Haskins still needs a little maturing and seasoning. And it sounds like he's smart and he'll figure it out. And coming back to what I started with, Haskins is making adjustments according to both Callahan and O'Connell in their public remarks, if if you believe them. I think it's fair to acknowledge the implication that something was lacking at the beginning, but it's equally important to gather that perhaps he's starting to figure it out a little bit. And if not, then, you know, either way, what they're clearly doing is setting the stage for him to play in the next few weeks. In my opinion, it's already long overdue, but by telling us these last couple of weeks that he's making big strides, they're clearly trying to warm us up to the idea of him coming in. And thank God, because this offense is currently unwatchable. I want to fire up the Haskins to McLaurin connection again. A couple things on Trent Williams, who sure does not seem like he's ever going to wear a Redskins uniform again, even come week 10, by which time he needs to report in order to accrue this season towards free agency. I mean, can you even imagine him coming back at this juncture? That's like two weeks from now. Imagine him just showing up and being like, okay, here I am, I'm ready, let's play. There's obviously a ton of animosity between the two parties at this point. Even if he did show up to get the season, I have a hard time imagining them letting him play. I don't think they would activate him. That would be the weirdest thing for, like, this culture supposedly in transition. And the most pointless thing ever, to even risk his injury as a tradable asset in a dead season. Anyway, the news on on Trent this week, of course, was Mike Garofalo of NFL Network reporting that his Redskins contacts insist that Trent definitely will not be traded this year, like no matter what, and that Bruce has been rebuffing John Dorsey from Cleveland every week since the season started in Dorsey's trade overtures. Here's my take on this, and it might not be exactly what you expect me to say. Obviously, I can't stand Bruce. I think most of his decisions are terrible. And his habits and strategies as an executive make my skin crawl. But I'm not sure, and I'm not sure any of us as fans can be 100% sure that waiting to trade him is definitely the wrong idea. Now, let me be clear. The very concept that he would refuse to even consider any offer, like no matter how high, is of course silly and, and, well, stupid. Everybody's got a price, and he needs to have one for Trent, like, you know, tonight. If someone offered four firsts, he would take it. Even if he has told someone who has told Mike Garofalo that it's not going to happen, he would do it. You know, everyone has a price. And I, I don't, I, I struggle to believe that even Bruce, who may be just pathologically stubborn and vindictive and self-preserving in his role, I struggle to think that he would willfully take less in return for Trent at any time, now or a few months from now, volitionally for the trade-off of just punishing Trent Williams or making a point or winning the negotiation. I mean, I can already hear most of you shaking your heads in disagreement because you believe that he may actually be that 
that stubborn, that it could be more important for him to make Trent suffer because of this disagreement than even for him to save face by maximizing return on the on the asset. And there's a chance. But I, I think more realistically, Bruce has decided that he'll get more or he has a higher chance of getting more for Trent if he waits. Now, here are a few things to consider. If Trent doesn't play another down this year because he refuses to show up, then he will be a player under contract for two more seasons, rather than as he would be right now, still under contract for just the remainder of this one and then one more. It's possible that this, that, that Bruce feels that this would increase his trade value. Now, of course, that depends on essentially risks him, you know, coming back, showing up by week 10 to accrue the season. To be using this rationale in part of your decision not to trade him immediately, Bruce would have to be fairly certain that Trent was just never going to show up. And that, that is a key part of this that I think we just don't know. We don't know what conversation has, has passed between those two men. We don't know for sure if Trent has told him that he might, or he might not, or he definitely will or will not. And even if we, we did know what had, had been said, I don't know how anyone could know the degree of Trent's conviction in that. Although I personally wouldn't bet against anything less than complete conviction, because that's silverback. Secondly, there's, there's this thing floating around a little now that I'm not sure everyone is aware of, which is that if, if again, if Trent doesn't play a single down this year, and it's entirely through his own refusal, not from the team you know, having to deactivate him after showing, then the Redskins will get, I believe, some salary cap uh, credit slash relief to carry into next year. Now, Trent's cap number this year, if I'm not mistaken, is strangely uh, low. It's actually only like $3.5 million. There's a quirk in these last few years of his contract. It goes, it goes up again quite a bit next year. However, his salary obviously would have been much more than that, and his cash number is over $11 million. So I'm not sure exactly what sort of credit that the team might be in line to get if he doesn't play at all. Again, if he refuses to report, but I think it would be pretty substantial. Whereas if they were to trade him now, I think it would be relatively cap neutral. So there is that too. There's this possibility that waiting might save the team a non-trivial amount of money. So there's the issue of how many years worth of control the receiving team would be getting. There's the issue of a possible substantial cap credit. And then there is, of course, the issue or the fact that, you know, trading him for picks in the 2020 draft right now won't get you any new players any sooner than trading him for picks in that same draft in January. You know, I think it would, it would sort of satisfy our uh, need for immediate gratification as fans. But having them in your hand right now, although it would allow you to start planning a little better for your offseason, would not actually realize your rewards any sooner. Unless, of course, the trade involved a player, which is materially different, a different situation. But I would argue not really in, in an important way since the season, again, is dead. So I guess my point here on the whole Trent Williams thing, which I'll wrap up, is just that I, I think there are a few important unknowns. I mean, the whole thing has been, a, this has been a very mysterious saga from the beginning. And we in the general public just don't know a lot of the important details about Trent's goals and objections and resolve. Now, again, it would be idiotic for Bruce to just literally be dismissing these conversations without listening to what was on the table, whether it be from Cleveland or New England or wherever else. I'm talking about right now. It would be idiotic, definitely, to be ignoring good offers right now. And I think we're all kind of assuming that, that maybe right now is when he should strike while the iron's hot because other teams will be desperate, more desperate now for their playoff pushes than they will be in January or February. But that is hard to gauge, and it's not necessarily true. 
So all in all, as much as I'd like to kill Bruce for anything and everything, because he gives us so many opportunities, I think that his patience on this one, uh, while not while not gratifying to the fans' immediate needs, uh, might be at least theoretically justifiable. Uh, I guess I guess you can consider me agnostic on this issue. Last thing I want to touch on tonight is uh, more examples of the Redskins winning off the field. They did this uh, fan event this weekend, this celebration thing that they decided to call a fantennial. This is like a big Redskins fan, I don't know, pep rally type thing with some of the alumni making appearances, and they tied in some community service type stuff. I think it was mostly at National Harbor. So the the team's Twitter account tweeted out, you know, some announcement about this thing and a link and a picture. And I, in my usual smart-ass way, tweeted back to that tweet, why would anyone go to this? Because personally, I cannot, for the life of me, imagine wanting to go to something like that right now. I am so deeply dissatisfied with the organization that attending a non-football event to support it just sounds like unadulterated pain. I mean, honestly, there's no way. I mean, this is this I would think is obvious to, to most of you. I mean, there's no way I would have accepted even a free ticket to today's game. I mean, they they were going like on StubHub and whatever for six bucks. But I mean, if you had paid for my ride or my parking and, and my food and my ticket and it was a good seat, no way I would have taken you up on that today to watch this awful team suffer an inevitable loss in horrible weather. You definitely, definitely would have had to pay me, I mean, probably several hundred dollars to trade this entire day of my life for that experience. But anyway, I thought it was interesting that I got a few, um, I got a few responses to that tweet. Three to be exact, or three from people who attended or, or were actively at the time of the tweet attending the event. There were many, many more responses than just those three that were, you know, essentially nodding in agreement. One of the three people who initially just um, reported his attendance and from whom I then asked for a brief report said further only that there were approximately three other people there with him, LOL. The second of the three RSVPs was from someone whose Twitter bio indicates that she's literally a member of the Redskins marching band. And the third individual uh, I gathered, again, from his Twitter bio, he is actually one of these guys in a group that is always in the first row on the 50-yard line every week at home wearing like the hard hats and the pig noses and they have a name for the group so yeah he's he's not I, i'm not sure how representative a fan he is but but actually that's that's my whole point in th- in thinking about this very very small sample size of three individuals who admitted to participating in this event after i indirectly disparaged it One of them also disparaged it. One of them is in the marching band, and one of them is like a new sad version of a hoggette. Before I take this any further, I don't have any problem with the Redskins marching band. I'm happy they exist, and I'm happy they have pep and enthusiasm. And I also certainly have, I I honestly have no issue with this particular brand of crazy diehard, this other guy, because his group actually does, uh, in addition to rapidly cheering on the Redskins every week, who, by the way, have not won a home game in more than a calendar year. But this guy's group of buddies, um, they, they actually like raise money for really good causes. Children in need. I mean, far be it from me to criticize anything about that plan. That, that actually deserves big kudos. But I'm going to bring this home to just point out that 
I think these are the only sorts of people still going to those events. They're the crazy, lunatic diehards whose passion will never wane, no matter how bad the team is and for how long. Many of them are, are actually affiliated with the team on a, on a much deeper level than just as fans. Like they're actually employed by the team, or they participate in a group that works with the team. And even if not, they're people whose love for the Redskins is truly unconditional. I cannot fathom it. I can't. I can uh, obviously relate to having an addiction or, or like a fascination or a morbid interest in the team, but I totally cannot relate to an unconditional support for or an undying love for the team. When the team, which I believe to be represented more by the people who own and administer it than by the players wearing its colors on the field. I cannot relate to unconditionally loving this team when the team so regularly treats us like shit, takes us for granted, tells us what's best for us when they don't know and cannot provide it anyway. But I truly believe that the key people here, the 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 Dan Snyders and the Bruce Allens, and maybe the Eric Schaefers and the Doug Williams, the minority owners, I think these people collectively are truly so insulated in their own bubble and so detached from our reality as fans that when they go to these fantennial events and harvest feasts or whatever, and they see even a few dozen of these people whose faces are still painted, whose cars are still tricked out in burgundy and gold, whose babies are in redskins onesies, when they see even a few of these people at these events, they think everything is going to be okay. They think we're still with them. They think we're merely disappointed and not enraged. Furious. They don't realize how many of us are watching in 2019 because we hope that they will lose and be humiliated because we are so injured by what they've taken from us. I don't think they get it at all. And it really just makes me want to scream.